I'm interrupting my own podcast to talk to you about Anchor. Anchor is brought to you by Spotify and is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. It will also help you distribute your podcast across popular podcast hosting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. Best of all, you can make money from your podcast on Anchor with no minimum listenership. So for those of us just starting out, this is very helpful. And do you know how much it costs to have everything you need to make a podcast in one place? 100% free. Yep, you heard me right. You can do all of this and make money for free. So if you have been thinking about starting your own podcast, now is your chance. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, I'm Yan. Hi, I'm Yvonne. Welcome to Lost and Refound Podcast. We're a podcast discussing our personal journeys as modern Asian women and sharing inspiring stories from within our community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Now let's get started. Hi, Yvonne. Hi, Yan. How are you? We're, I'm doing okay on a, on a Saturday morning. We're doing okay. The smoke is kind of clearing up oh my god yeah well clearing up where i am um but definitely not a great time to be exercising outside (laughs) well we already so we do annual photo shoot and i had to this is i just uh rescheduled for the third time because every time we reschedule it to a new date a fire start so we just said, let's just wait until fall when there's no more fires then we'll schedule because it seems like the scheduling is like bad luck Right, right. If it's not that, then maybe your power will go out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, we definitely need to find a way to cope with the, the annual fires. We, we expect them every year from California. This is the norm going forward. Right. Exa- I mean, with the state of our world, et cetera. Yeah. I think that there's just, we, we just have to find a way, I guess, as a society and as a community to, to find a way to um, help cope with this. Have you watched Kiss the Ground on Netflix? No, I haven't. And I still you should need watch to watch it. Social it's Dilemma. so, oh my gosh. They're both, well, Social Dilemma is also really good. Social Dilemma, Dilemma is scary. Right. Um, Kiss the Ground is also scary, but it's also hopeful. Mm. And it's about how, if we focus on our soil, how much faster we can reverse uh, climate change. That makes sense. It's really, Foundation. really incredible, really, really powerful. I think you'll enjoy that film. Definitely. Anyway, so um, for October, Yvonne and I decided to do something different. Uh, since this is the spooky month of Halloween, we wanted to share our other passion, which is true crime and mysteries. So for the month of October, every single week, we'll launch one episode covering either true crime or mystery story. Um, today, I'm going to be covering a story on Johnny Gosh. This is a very, very famous um, child abduction story from the 19, early 1980s. And this story will really cover um, issues with child sex trafficking and police or corruption to the highest level of government. And um, this episode may upset some people because I will talk about child molestation and child exploitation. I won't go into any details. Um, so, but I will just mention 
you know, this happened. So if, if you are at all sensitive to this kind of stuff, then maybe skip this episode. Um, but I, the reason I want to do this story is because I am a mother to two girls. So this kind of stuff is really, really scary to me. In fact, child abduction is one of my biggest fears. I think there's nothing worse than not knowing what happened to your child. And so this is really important to me. And I just want to really share um, this with other parents that may not be aware of how rampant human trafficking is. And because this, this uh, topic is so scary, I have my energy cleansing sage candle here. <laughs> and I have my black tourmaline and my clear crystal to ward off negative energy. So mm. let's get started. <laughs> Um, okay, so before I get started, I'm going to first talk about some statistics on human trafficking so that we all are aware what a huge issue this is. Um, human trafficking is the third largest criminal enterprise in the world. Children account for 27% of all human trafficking victims worldwide. Two out of every three child victims are girls. So again, being a mother of two girls, this is really, really scary. Girls tend to be trafficked for forced marriages and sexual slavery. Boys are typically exploited for forced labor or as soldiers. About 120 million girls worldwide, slightly more than one in 10, have experienced forced sex or other forced sexual acts at some point in their lives. That is one in 10 girls. Think about that. <clears throat> Internet is now sex trafficking's main channel to recruit new victims. So we really have to be careful of where our children are, are looking at online. Uh, you know, Sophie, she's 10, she just turned 10, and we just gave her her first laptop. And, you know, she's looking, she's searching stuff on Google. So we are really, it's really important to putting child protection um, on the internet. Or just be aware of what is your child's Also be aware of what they're yeah. doing. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah but and there are certain websites you should just really restrict on if they can go on or not because, you know, People are, sales traffickers are, they're so savvy. They're like, so, they're so savvy. And mm -hmm. I mean, they will pose as anybody. And, and there's women, people that look like grandmas that do this. I mean, this is an organization. This is a very, very well organized. They are very, very smart. They have a lot of resources. They have a lot of people in power that protect them. So we as citizens have to be extra vigilant with our children and with ourselves because we too can be trafficked plenty of adults get trafficked, not just for sex. Remember, tra human trafficking includes slavery, forced slavery, you know, in, in the United States and other countries. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the United States is one of the biggest child trafficking nations in the world, wow. happening in all 50 states. Wow, that's crazy. Um, I don't really remember a couple of years ago when the government, the federal government came out and said they lost almost 1,500 unaccompanied migrant children. This is like a couple of years ago. And they said, oh, no, they weren't really lost. We just, you know, can't find um, the people that took them in. But here's the thing. We all know the government is hugely included and involved in human trafficking. It's inexcusable or, in yeah. this day to just lose people. That's yeah. So it's like, bad. where do they go? Right? This is not just one or two. This is 1,500. <laughs> um, the average age of entry is 15 years old for girls, younger for boys. And more than 80% of victims are U.S. citizens. Wow. 99% of, of sex trafficking buyers are men. I feel like I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> I, I love men. Don't hate men. But I also am not surprised that men are 99% of, of sex trafficking buyers are men. 
Okay, so um, the Johnny Gosh case I'm going to cover spans from 1982 all the way to 2006. Um, this is still ongoing, he's still not found, but I'm only going to cover up until 2006 because it goes really quiet after that. Um, there are a lot of crazy twists and turns and a bunch of characters, so I will try my best to keep it straightforward and as clear as possible, but Yvonne, please stop me at any point if you think it's getting confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, I will also list my sources in, as, in this episode's show notes, but the sources include uh, Mile Higher Podcast, and they did a fantastic two-hour episode on this case, and I got a lot of information from them. Um, Who Took Johnny is a documentary you can find on Amazon Prime that details this case, and you can see, you know, how emotion, like all the characters involved, and you can see the emotional look on the parents, and then you can also see the lack of care from the police. It's really, really frustrating to watch. And then johnnygosh.com is a website started by Noreen Gosh, his mother, to help Johnny. Um, okay, so first let's discuss some of the main characters in the first part of the investigation. Later, when other characters, characters come in, I'll explain how they fit into the storyline because we're covering so many years, there are a lot of characters. But I'll try to just focus on the main ones. Okay, so the main characters are Johnny Gosh, who was born on November 12, 1969, to Noreen and John Gosh Sr. Johnny lived with his parents in an upper middle class suburb in West Des Moines, Iowa. Then there's Noreen Gosh, who is Johnny's mother. She has never stopped searching for her son since the, since the disappearance. Noreen Gosh is somewhat of a controversial character because of how outspoken she was in this investigation and how critical she was of the local police and the FBI. But honestly, to me, she's a hero. To this day, she's still helping other families with missing children. That says a lot about her character and her tenacity. Next is John Gosh Sr., who is Johnny's father. His father was very active during the investigation as well, and together with Noreen, has helped pass new laws to help missing children. However, there is controversy and conspiracy around John Sr.'s involvement in Johnny's abduction. And I will talk about this later once I have shared the whole story. And you can decide if you think he was involved. I am very much on the fence on this one. I will also mention here that Johnny has two step-siblings from Noreen's first marriage who are much older, but they are not involved in, in this story, so I will not be speaking about them. But just so you know about the family, mm -hmm. um, that he does have two older siblings. And also Noreen and John Sr. did get divorced in 1993. And then there's police chief Orville Cooney, who was the chief of West Des Moines Police Department during this investigation. He later resigned from office due to allegations of drinking on the job and corruption charges from his fellow officers. Hmm. There is also Paul Bonacci, a convict who came forward with key information on the Johnny Gosh case. Hmm. Lastly, there's Lawrence King. He was the director of the Franklin County Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska, and a rising star in the Republican Party. He was ultimately convicted along with his associates for embezzling $40 million and was accused of running a large child sex trafficking ring in Omaha, Nebraska. So those are the main characters. Um, but there will be a slew of other names, such as witnesses, private investigators, lawyers, and potential criminals. But these are six names you will be hearing a lot. Okay, on the same page? Yes. Okay, now we're going to get into the case. Johnny Gosh took a job as a Sunday newspaper delivery boy and had been doing this job for about a year before his disappearance. 
His normal routine was to leave his house around 5.30 on Sunday morning with his father and deliver newspapers in his area. However, the night before he disappeared, Johnny asked his parents if he can go alone the next morning. John Sr. agreed, but Noreen was concerned and said no. And I'm telling you, always trust a mother's intuition. And, and how old is he right now? He's 13. 13. So a 13-year-old yeah. boy asking his mother if he can go out alone. In the morning. In the and morning. He usually leaves around 5.30 in the morning, so it's still dark. Hmm. And if you think about it, back, I mean, back in the days, people didn't really worry about the same things, right? Like, we were able to play outside, like, you know, Certainly play in the at dark. 13. Yeah, at 13, yeah. my mom was, was yeah. less worried. I yeah. have friends, so she's expecting also. But he's alone. Mm, I don't he's know. Alone. Yeah, mother's I know. I don't think, here. Yeah, I don't know. if, But I also knew, like, my, my best friend said, so, like, when he was in middle school I was like 13 they used to catch a bus at 5 30 in the morning that's true um but you know back in the days that was normal okay uh, anyway so john senior told johnny to wake him up the next morning since noreen said no um to him going alone but johnny didn't instead on sunday september 5th 1982 johnny was 13 at the time left his home at 5 50 a.m with his newspaper delivery wagon and his dog he cut through his neighbor's yard as always and walked two blocks east to the paper drop corner at 42nd Street and Ashworth Road. As Johnny was walking, he was approached by a two-toned blue Ford Fairmount car with the male driver asking for directions. Then the dr driver drove off. Then a few minutes later, Johnny was at the newspaper drop corner with a friend and the same car pulled up again asking for directions. At this time, a neighbor, John Rossi, came out to get his newspaper and saw the two boys and the car. It was then Johnny asked John if he can give this man directions, but the man quickly then did a U-turn and peeled all of there really, really fast. Johnny described the man to his friend as creepy, and he said he was scared of him. And John, the neighbor, described him as either high or on a lot of caffeine with intense eyes. A few minutes later, another witness saw a man hiding behind two houses come out and walk toward the direction Johnny was leading. So all of this happened. There, was, there are witnesses, witnesses that saw all of this. Oh. Yep. Johnny eventually reached his block and parked his wagon at 42nd Street and Mark Court, where he usually leaves his wagon while he delivered newspapers. A neighbor was able to see from his window what looked like a silver Ford Fairmount pulled up to Johnny's location. But due to the location of his house, he was not able to see if Johnny was behind the car. The neighbor then turned away for a moment and heard a car door slam and the car quickly driving off. That was approximately 6.06 a.m. and was the last time anyone has seen Johnny. No! Yeah. At 7.45 a.m., a neighbor called John Sr. asking where his newspaper is. John Sr. is instantly became uh, concerned because Johnny was known as a responsible kid who has never skipped a delivery in the year he had this job. Mm -hmm. Then he found John, uh, Johnny's dog tied to his abandoned wagon with all the newspapers. And he knew something was wrong because Johnny would never leave his dog. He loved that dog. Do you think the dog barked when he was escaping or? It was a, I don't know. It was a small dachshund too. Oh, so, so it wasn't a big dog, it was a little dog. Guys, big dogs for... Big dogs for children, okay? <laughs> I know, that's like only pimples for my kids. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, and it was then John Sr. realized Johnny had not delivered even one single newspaper, which means he was taken pretty quickly. So then John Sr. decided to deliver all the newspapers himself before searching for his son. 
So, I mean, I can't speak for other parents, but I feel like if my kid is missing, I will prioritize searching my kid over delivery newspapers. But I can't speak for him. Maybe he thought for this once, Johnny like saw a friend and ran off, right? But still, I thought that was kind of weird that he delivered all the papers first and then went to look for her, his son. However, John Sr. was not able to find his son and he called the police about his son's disappearance at 8.30 in the morning. The police who are stationed only about 10 blocks away took about 45 minutes to arrive at the Gosh residence. So remember when you have a child abduction, every second counts, right? And they took 45 minutes to drive 10 blocks to the Gosh residence. At and 6 instantly, in the morning. Yeah, at 8, 8.30 morning. 8.30, mm, yeah. yeah. Cool. And this is a small town, like this is not like a crime written town. Yeah, you know? questions. And instantly when the police arrived, they told both parents that their, the son, their son was a runaway. So they said, your, your son ran away. Without any evidence. Without any, Without any evidence. Crazy. Yeah. And Noreen, the badass mom she is, had at this point already tracked down and interviewed all the kids and witnesses who had saw Johnny that morning. She had written down about what they had seen, including about the car and the man. But the police refused to even look at her notes and refused to do any interviews. They still assumed Johnny was a runaway, even though Johnny's parents, friends, and neighbors all insisted he would never run away from home. And this is the 90s, like still. Like, no, this is 1982. 1982. 80s. Mm-hmm. Oh. 80s, yeah. Wow. Please use the, the fact that his wagon and newspapers were left behind as evidence that no crime had taken. They said if someone kidnapped him, they will also take the wagon and the newspaper, which makes zero sense. Zero Think sense. about it, okay? If somebody's going to come drive up, duck the kid and put them in the car and then say, let me open the trunk, put the wagon and newspaper in the trunk and then drive off. Right, because they're heavy what? and they're going to be yeah. loud. Like- Why? Why would they need the, the, they're not trying to abduct a newspaper. <laughs> like, that makes zero sense. Oh, people, like. Because they assumed Johnny was a runaway, they won't start the investigation for at least 72 hours, which was the law back then. Wow. What this is was it 1982. Now? now it is like they have to take action instantly. Right. Okay. Because of the Amber yeah. Alert, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then in fact, during 1982, here's an example, right? The FBI will track a missing car across state lines, but they will not track a missing child in 1982. Think about that. Like what the actual fuck is going on in 1982? That's, well, that's crazy. I'm getting chills right now. That's one, that's crazy because two, I can imagine that as a lawmaker, that maybe back in 1982, that they just didn't think they're like, this concept didn't really happen. Exactly. They're just like, no one's going to take people. Even after this happened and Noreen Gosh and her team used to go to like, um, like schools to try to do um, uh, educational seminars to parents, people wouldn't show up because they didn't think this was real. That's insane. And, And what state is this in again? This is in Iowa. In Iowa. Mm. Yeah. Yep. So, an officer and a detective did eventually come back to the Gosh house eight hours later that day. But after interviewing the parents, the detective did not believe their story. Then Noreen even tried to give the detective a picture of her son for the search, but he refused to take the photo of a missing child. An investigator would not take a photo of a missing child. In the, that's, I just don't understand. What? Like, how are they going to find him? That automatically, this just tells me, like, from the get-go, from... Corruption. You know, like we said, child trafficking goes up to the highest form of government. Think about, think about how many people came out and accused of Trump. 
mm. of Jeff Epstein. Think about his case, oh. right? And he's providing that to all to really, really rich, prominent people. Wow. This, he's now providing those kids for poor people. <laughs> you know? I guess. Now, listen to this crazy, crazy thing next. So people within the community had heard about Johnny's disappearance, so they formed their own search party since the police won't do shit about it, right? Absolutely, protect your people. Yeah, but police chief Orville Cooney arrived on the scene, drunk, I might add, stood on a picnic table with a megaphone and told the crowd to go home. He said, this kid is nothing but a damn runaway. The police chief, telling people they, the community cannot search for a missing boy. Some of the volunteers confronted Noreen and John Sr. about this. Noreen went to the police station to demand answers, then asked if they can contact FBI, which the police refused. So then Noreen decided to call the FBI herself. Three days after Johnny's disappearance, two FBI agents came to see Noreen. Mm. But they told Noreen, Chief Cooney told them he didn't need their help, so the FBI will not get involved in this case at this time. Wow, because local authority mm -hmm. over... And listen to this. Then Noreen also found out the chief of Dallas County, which is the county over, next county over, along with several other local county sheriffs, had sent officers to Chief Cooney to help with the investigation, but Chief Cooney refused all of their help. Wow. So he had manpower. Noreen then asked if she can use the National Guard's helicopter to help search for Johnny. But the governor of Iowa, Robert Ray, said they will have to pay $800 an hour, which was out of the family's budget. So no help came from the state either. Oh my gosh, my heart is dropping. This poor mother. Noreen also learned they could have used tracking dogs for free, but Chief Cooney did not allow it. Then Noreen had gathered all the tips that, were, that was coming in about Johnny and gave them to Chief Cooney to follow up, but he refused to follow up up on any one of them, stating they weren't relevant and not worth the effort. Okay, think about all, like, no help from anyone. On September 24, 1982, just two weeks after Johnny went missing, Noreen saw a story in the newspaper about two young girls from Des Moines who were kidnapped and sold into sex trafficking in Omaha, Nebraska. Mm. The girls were rescued and their perpetrators were caught. She took this to the police, asking them to look into any links between the two cases. Of course, they refused. Why? Like, why would you refuse? I don't understand. Right? Then in 1983, Noreen asked if they can put up a poster of Johnny at the city hall. But again, they refused, saying that the poster of missing children will upset visitors. So you can see everyone in a power, position of power that could have helped this couple all refused to help. Why? Why will people in power not want to help uh, find a missing 13-year-old child and the desperate parents who are willing to, willing to do anything to get them back? Why? Why no help? Ooh, yeah, was something else going on that's like more important? Like that's like when you think about, right? Like as a What's more important than a 13-year-old boy? Nothing's more important Nothing. when a child goes missing. Correct. Nothing is more critical yeah, you drop everything exactly. and you help find that, that child. Right, exactly, because it just happened. Oh. Yeah. So by sense. this time, Noreen was convinced Johnny had been kidnapped and she believed Chief Cooney could possibly be involved. Because, oh. I, mean, I mean, come on, think about it. If this was your child, wouldn't you think there's something going on with the police? Why would they not even do anything, not even lift a finger to help look for this kid? Makes zero sense. It does. It makes zero sense. 
Yeah, so since she couldn't trust the police, she called for a press conference. In this press conference, she brought up the two missing girls who were found and the potential connection between the two cases, as she should. She also warned the public to protect their children. Mm -hmm. Chief Cooney was furious at Noreen for holding this press conference, and immediately after, she started getting threatening phone calls for her to drop this or she will be dead. Wow, and this is a police fan calling a citizen. Well, no, they don't know if Chief Cooney yelled at her and threatened her, but then random people start calling her and she didn't know who are wow. these random people but we can all guess where these calls are coming from i see i just made that assumption but yes <laughs> yeah after the press conference the police told noreen and john senior they will no longer prioritize their son's case but then let's be serious they were never ever prioritizing this case anyway and an officer even told noreen in front of her boss so her boss heard this just have another baby to keep yourself busy and forget all about johnny and the fact that a, a person of power said that, that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. A police person who is supposed to help you and protect you told you to forget about your son and have another baby to keep you busy. <laughs> By this time, FBI has also refused to help and called Noreen a loon for thinking her son was kidnapped by sex traffickers. Wow. So FBI also came out and made fun of her. That's crazy. Well... And now that we know the statistics that you'd given us like in the beginning, that's so crazy because they, they must know that this is not an unusual case, that these yeah. are not unusual calls. These are no. not unusual circumstances. This is, this is a statistic. Kids go missing everywhere. Every day. Where are they, where are they going? They're never found. Where are they? And, and I know a lot of them are, most of them are U.S. citizens, but still a lot of them are minority Correct. kids. Black children, Native American children are the most common to go missing. Right. And we don't talk about it, actually, no. in the U.S. Well, the, the mainstream media doesn't talk about it either. Right. Exactly. Why? Like, this is, like, the biggest issue. Why? That's the biggest question, I think. Why? Like, out of all the things we actually talk about, we don't talk about helping and trying to find missing people. Well, again, I would say think about who, who, who runs was the Jeff, Yeah, who was, who was Jeff Epstein trying to cater to? And then think about that, yeah. right? And think about why we as as normal citizens have zero power in things like this crazy okay um okay so okay now we're getting into the private investigators noreen and john senior hired to help search for johnny as well as promising tips coming from the public so new names will be brought up so stop me if you get confused at any point okay so noreen and john senior hired their own high profile private investigators including a retired detective in the nypd named jim rostin and a retired fbi chief from los angeles named ted gunderson so both have a lot of experience they also had to hire a sketch artist themselves to get a sketch of the man witness saw uh, witnesses saw talking to johnny the morning he disappeared so police never even got a stick sketch of the man Crazy. they had to hire their own sketch artist Right, and how many years later? Like, how many days later? So, so this was, they're this relying on like, memory at this point. Yeah, this was like, this is still the same year, but this was like... Months know. later, days later. Yeah, how much yeah. do you remember about a person you see? Like, oh, man. <sighs> it's so crazy. During this entire time, tips were coming in about sightings of Johnny as well. Uh, one tip came in in 1983. So he was adopted September 1982. This tip came in 1983. I'm not sure exactly when. Um, where a man reported seeing Johnny in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She said she saw Johnny screaming for help and running away from two men. According to her, Johnny ran right up to her and was begging for help. He said, please, lady, help me. My name is John David Gosh. 
but the man quickly caught up and one of the men grabbed Johnny by the arm and dragged him away. The woman reported to the local police, but they dismissed it as a family situation. They said it, was a, it must have been a kid mad at his parents pretending to be Johnny Gosh. What fucking kid does this? What fucking kids will be like, I'm mad at parents. I'm going to pretend to be a missing child and run up to some random, random lady. Especially because at that, at that time, like, right. I have no words. Like, what? That's so pretty much Later, up. she saw Johnny Gosh's picture in the news and confirmed 100% that that was the boy she saw. Wow. So she went back to the police and insisted that was the boy she saw. This time, the police contacted Noreen and John Sr. And with the help of their private investigators, who at this time was working with the FBI on this particular tip, was able to confirm on January of 1982 that this boy the lady saw was indeed Johnny Gosh. But by now, the trial is lost. Because remember, he was abducted, abducted in 1982. This tip came in 1983. They confirmed 1984. Wow. So it was too late by that time. That so they could have found him. If the lady, the thing with the witnesses, you can never tell, right? Some, some people just want to in, interject themselves for the fame, whatever. But, but you still have to take every tip seriously. And if this was a real tip, they could have found him. Okay, so in January 1984, a private investigator named Sam Soda contacted Noreen and wanted to help with the case. She went to meet him at his office and brought a tape recorder. And this is crazy. Sam explained an informant had told him about a future abduction. A young paper boy would be kidnapped from the south side of Des Moines during the second weekend of August 1984. She took the tape to the police and they dismissed her. And I, I get they say, like they said, you know, you can't trust informant stuff, but still at least listen to it. At least look into it. Don't just dismiss something like this, you know? Um, but as told by Sam Soda, another young paper boy dis disappeared under eerily similar circumstances. Eugene Martin was a 13-year-old paper boy in Des Moines. On August 12, 1984, Eugene was delivering papers on the south side of Des Moines around 5.30 a.m. when three witnesses saw him talking to a man as he walked along his route. This was just seven miles from where Johnny was taken. They all assumed the man was Eugene's father based on their body language, but then Eugene disappeared. All that was found was his sack of newspapers lying on the side of the road. This time, the local police started searching for Eugene right away, and they called in the FBI right away. A few days later, after Eugene disappeared, they got a tip he was seen in Ankeny, Iowa, a town about 20 minutes from where he disappeared. The police, within helicopter and with community help, went out to search, but was unable to locate Eugene. However, police insisted there was no connection between this and Johnny's case. They said aside from them both being boys, there was no other connection. Really? What about the fact they were both 13, both Newburgh newspaper boys taken on Sunday morning, both in similar areas, both were witnessed to talk to a man in a car, and both looked similar? Ugh. So again, what the actual fuck is going on here? Eugene's stepmother believed the only way Eugene would follow a stranger is if they had politely asked him for directions, which is what happened to Johnny. Remember, some guy asked Johnny for directions. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Eugene, like Johnny, was never found. After Eugene was kidnapped, someone sent Noreen, as well as some other people in the community, a strange poster with a sketch of a man who was talking to Johnny from the Blue Fort Fairmount. And under that sketch is another sketch of a man that looked exactly like Sam Soda, the private investigator who told Noreen another boy would be kidnapped. 
So think about this, okay? Sam Soda, some random guy, claims he's a private investigator, calls Noreen and says, I have information for you, I wanna help you. She meets him with him, he tells her, potentially there's something, this kid might get kidnapped. And this happens. After the kid was kidnapped, a poster uh, mysteriously appears on Noreen doorsteps and some other people in the community, a sketch of a man that was talking to Johnny and below that is another sketch with the face of the man that was talking to Johnny and that man looked exactly like Sam Soda. How crazy is this case going? <laughs> I'm telling you, there's so many twists and turns in this case, it's crazy. But the child trafficking organization is a well-oiled machine. It's not unheard of where they interject themselves into an investigation to see what's going on, to see if they're close. That's true. I mean, or if you're to really throw smart. off track. Yeah, yeah. like to so, throw people off track. That's exactly yeah. what smart people would do. Yep. So, you know, that's super crazy. Unfortunately, nothing much is known about Sam Soda since the police never investigated him once. He comes up quite a few times. The police never investigated him. From what we know is he had detailed information about child sex rings operating out of Omaha. And he also knew about a man who worked for the Des Moines Register who had molested about 14 paper boys. So he had information about uh, child sex trafficking and like these sex offenders. But like, how does he know these people? And like, who the hell is this guy? Right. In July 1985, a woman in Sioux City, Iowa was shopping at her local grocery store. After paying for groceries, she noticed some writing on a dollar bill she got back as change. The writing said, I am alive, Johnny Gosh, with this name signed as a signature. The woman gave the dollar bill to the police as evidence. Handwriting analysts confirmed the signature was in fact Johnny's signature. So we know, you know, he wrote that and he was alive he was at alive. that time. Yeah. <clears throat> on March 29, 1986, 13-year-old Mark Allen vanished from his quiet neighborhood in Des Moines. Again, Des Moines. Mark told his mother he was walking to a friend's house down the street. His mother was ordering pizza, and the last thing Mark said to her before he left was, save me some pizza, mom. I'll be hungry when I get home. He was never seen again. The last person to see him was his mother. No one saw him talking to anyone else in this case. Mark's mom went to the police, but the law enforcement again insisted there wasn't any evidence linking the disappearance of these three boys, all from the same, same area, all 13. On Valentine's Day, 1988, Noreen received a typed letter postmarked from Idaho. The letter was from Johnny. At one point, the letter is said, I'll never be permitted to return home. They cut my hair, they dye my hair, I look different. Please don't ever forget me. Love your son, Johnny Gosh. Since the letter was typed, they couldn't verify if this was in fact from Johnny. But Noreen said she knew it was from Johnny by the way it was written and the details included in the letter. But the most significant evidence is how the letter was signed. Whenever Johnny gave his parents letters and cards, he always signed it as love your son, Johnny Gosh. They told him, they teased him about it and told him he didn't need to sign his name as your son and include both his first and last name but he continued to sign his name this way. So this is how she, she's sure it's from him. And I also feel like a mom just knows Yeah. if this is from your child. That's true. I mean, at this you know, point. He was 13. It wasn't like he was like five. You know, like, you know his behavior and how he talks, how he writes and all that. But what is really interesting is that it was printed. So he had access to a computer, computer. or technology. Yeah. yeah. But there was no internet back in the days. 
18, right. There's not no, there's, there's no this internet. 1988. Correct. Yeah. Be, so then by even means, like having a computer. Like how, did, how did he get a computer That's access? exactly what I'm saying. So he has to be somewhere where that's like, somebody with high net worth at that time to have a computer at home. Or a normal. library or, yeah, the, who had computers back Well, then? although, although they didn't say type, I think type on computer or type on typewriter. But even then typewriters were like, not everybody had a typewriter because you, you, you usually had it for like a specific job and they were, they were allowed. So if Johnny was typing, right, someone must have known yeah. that he was typing. Anyways, so uh, there was, he yeah. was given access essentially. Like yeah. he had access to things. Yeah. And also they weren't, they weren't sure like if, you know, they, they told me to write certain That's things. That's true. You yeah. know? That's true. Yeah. So none of those tips really went anywhere. And now we're going to talk about Paul Bonacci who I think gave the most credible story, at least to, to me, of exactly what happened to Johnny. So in 1989, a man named Paul Bonacci was a convicted sex offender in prison suffering from multiple personality disorder. He reached out to a well-known lawyer named John DeCamp to help him take down a large child sex trafficking ring in Omaha, Nebraska, led by a prominent businessman named Lawrence E. King Jr. Lawrence at that time was the director of the Franklin County Quota Union in Omaha, Nebraska, and was a rising star in the Republican Party. When John DeCamp read an account of Paul's story, he was stunned. He did some research and found the dates matched the parents' case of Johnny Gosh exactly. John DeCamp decided to reach out to the Gosh family with this information. John Sr. took the call, but he did not tell his wife about it. Instead, why? he, yeah, why? Instead, he went to meet Paul Bonacci himself in prison. When Paul saw John Sr., he said, you look like, it can't be your eyes. They look like Johnny Gosh. John Sr. said he believed Paul's story, but decided to hire a private investigator named Roy Stevens to look into Paul's claims. Hmm. Roy interviewed Paul on tape for hours. During these interviews, Paul said a man he called Emilio ran a kidnapping business selling children. Emilio especially enjoyed targeting children from close families to inflict the most emotional pain because he liked to hurt people. Like, fucked up people. People are sick. Paul claimed Emilio had actually kidnapped him when he was just a teenager and brought him to Des Moines. The night before the kidnapping of Johnny, Emilio and Paul had stayed in the hotel that evening and a man came over with a picture of a young boy. Paul was told this is the picture of a boy they were going to kidnap. Emilio and Paul then woke up early the next morning at the same time as the paper boy. Emilio drove his blue Ford Fairmont to Johnny's neighborhood with Paul in the back seat. After Emilio pulled Johnny into the car, Paul was instructed to hold him down with chloroform to keep him quiet. After the abduction, Emilio forced Paul at gunpoint to, to molest Johnny on tape. So to also incriminate Paul. Even though John DeCamp believed Paul's account of story, FBI refused to investigate Paul's claims. Then another victim, 21-year-old Alicia Owens, came forward and corroborated Paul's story. During this time, other allegations came out about Lawrence King and other high-profile public figures, including allegations about throwing sex parties where underage children were offered to guests. So fucking sick. Multiple victims came forward and described their experience being given drugs and alcohol then auctioned off by Lawrence King. By 1990, the case against Lawrence King was heard by the Douglas County Omaha Grand Jury, and the jury found Paul's story to be a carefully crafted hoax. 
The main reason they discredit Paul was because of his multiple personalities. To be able to recall specific details, Paul would lower his head and call up that specific personality on demand. Each one of Paul's personalities had specific memories he can access. Okay, so I know this sounds crazy, but there have been other cases where children will develop multiple personalities so they can protect themselves from the trauma they're experiencing. For example, there's a woman in Australia. Her name is Jenny Haynes. Have you heard about her? Mm-mm. Her case is fast. You should look. Her case is fascinating. But she was sexually abused by her father starting at the age of four. Oh my God. During her abuse, her entire life under her father, she developed over 2,500 different personalities in order to protect her true self. Later, she was able to use those personalities and each of the personalities' memories to take down and convict her father with two, de- two detectives who finally believed her story. Oh my God. So this happens, right? They discredit Paul because he had multiple personalities, but he was also a victim he, himself. He was also kidnapped as a child and had to do terrible things. And he came out with personalities to protect himself. Mm-hmm. But this in turn was used to discredit him in the investigation. Because the jury did not find Paul's story credible, both Alicia and Paul were indicted for perjury for coming forward. Since Paul was already in jail, his charge was dropped. But poor Alicia was sentenced to 9 to 15 years in prison for coming forward in the Lawrence King case. So tell me, how does this encourage victims to come out? For real? Like, you're just punishing? Well, one, I think this is not prison. system. Like, yeah. that is not justice. That is in no way uh, hmm. yeah a victim came out to tell her story and she's put in prison for saying she was lying that's crazy that's crazy lawrence king was never charged for sex trafficking but he and other officers at his credit union were indicted for embezzlement and fraud he embezzled almost 40 million dollars and spent 15 years behind bars but zero charge for sex trafficking even though there was a ton of evidence that he was running this ring. Mm. Later, Paul filed a civil case against Lawrence for his sexual abuse and being used as a tool to kidnap other children. But Lawrence didn't show up to the case. The judge ruled in Paul's favor, stating, the uncontracted evidence is that the plaintiff has suffered much, all in connection with the multiple personality personality disorder caused by the wrongful activities of the defendant. A fair judgment to compensate the plaintiff is necessary. Paul was awarded $1 million in damages on February 27, 1999, but of course, he was never paid out by King. <laughs> Meanwhile, Noreen didn't know anything about Paul until March 1991 because John Sr. never told her. Even after, he never told her about Paul. Why? Just mm-hmm. why would you hold back information in these cases? I mean, I could understand if, you know, he didn't want to make her upset if it wasn't true but like yeah like she can't handle but obviously she can't handle that she's been fighting this entire time that's where i mean there's so many question marks here the time the time that people have allowed these very significant information to go unnoticed or just unchecked or just un Mm -hmm. uh is is painful this is incredibly painful yep so Noreen was finally contacted by the private investigator, Roy Stevens, who showed her the interview tapes of Paul. So if Roy Stevens never reached out to Noreen, she would not have known about Paul. After Noreen found out, she wanted to confirm if Paul was telling the truth. 
She showed Paul pictures of 12 men and asked if he recognized any of them in the kidnapping. Paul pointed out one man who he said was the man who came over to the hotel the night before Johnny's kidnapping to show them the picture of the target. And he said he knew the man's name. It was, dun dun dun, Sam Soda. The private investigator who had predicted Eugene's kidnapping. But like what? I said, the police never investigated Sam Soda because they threw out everything Paul said as not credible. How will he know? This is Sam Soda. How will he know? <laughs> yeah. On October 1991, Paul finally told Noreen and John Sr. the whole story. So here's the story. Paul told them another, another man named Tony had come to the hotel the night before Johnny's kidnapping. The man looked at several pictures of paper boys and decided on Johnny because he would bring the most money. After they kidnapped Johnny, he was then transferred to a van driven by none other than Tony and Sam Soda. Johnny was driven to Sioux City and was locked in a windowless room in a farmhouse for a week or more. After that, he was taken to Colorado. John Sr. and Noreen believed Paul's story because he had details about Johnny that was never publicized, as well as details about the kidnapping that was never released by the police. Some of these things included Johnny had a stutter whenever he was agitated or nervous. He had a scar on his tongue and a scar on his lower leg from a burn. None of this information was ever released to the public. He also knew about a birthmark on Johnny's chest that looked like the shape of South America, but that has been disclosed to the public. Paul also knew Noreen was a longtime yoga instructor and used to take Johnny to work with her. Johnny had talked about learning yoga and meditation while his mom to stay calm. Once again, Noreen had never told the media or the police about taking Johnny to work with her because it was never relevant to the investigation. Wow. So how did Paul know this if he didn't, wasn't with, with Johnny? Yeah, but you, you can't, can't just make, make this, this up. up. Yeah. yeah, that's so detailed. There was another instance when a neighbor in Johnny's neighborhood had seen a man taking Johnny's picture. The neighbor went to the police with this information after Johnny's disappearance, but the police never released this information. But Paul knew about this. Investigators have also confirmed Paul's claims that multiple cars have been used in the abduction, but the FBI and the police still refuse to speak with Paul or follow up on any of the tips he's given. They won't even talk to Paul. Okay. Police at the time also said there was no way the kidnappers could have taken Johnny all the way to Colorado, dismissing Paul's claims. But in 1991, a message was discovered on the bathroom wall written in red nail polish at a Denver restaurant. The message said, Johnny Gosh was here. Paul had been with Johnny and another boy the day he wrote that on the wall. Paul was able to describe the restaurant and said they were painting their nails in the bathroom when Johnny wrote that message. In 1992, America's Most Wanted had featured a story on Johnny Gosh. And by the way, I, I freaking love that. Do you remember that show? America's Most Wanted? I, I, I remember the show, but I never watched it. Oh, I love that show. Okay. Anyway, the producers said the police and FBI refused to help them with this episode. They also weren't sure how credible Paul was with his criminal record and his multiple personality disorder. John Walsh, who was the host of America's Most Wanted, had Paul take them to the house where he and Johnny were held in Colorado. You can see in the documentary how emotional Paul was when he reached the house. It was also clear Paul knew the layout of the house intimately, including a secret entrance they dug out to, to put the children in when police raided the house. They were able to see multiple initials carved into the wood in the dug-out hole. 
but the police still refused to follow up even after this. Even after they ran this on America Most Wanted, and they did say a ton of people started calling in with, with uh, tips and their own stories about that house and what they experienced with certain people. Again, the police would not follow up. Paul was also able to produce some other evidence. The kids that were kidnapped formed their own family and tried to take care of each other. So while he was in prison, he received letters from people he knew back in the sex ring. One of the letters referenced someone named JG. The letter referenced the restaurant in Colorado and said, I remember painting on the wall with nail polish with JG, Johnny Gosh. Other letter referenced Emilio, someone called the Colonel, as well as other kidnapped boys, including names of Mark Allen and Eugene Martin. So the other two kidnapped boys were also referenced in those letters. And it's alleged the colonel referred in the letters was Michael Aquino, a political scientist and a military officer. Okay, so that's Paul's story. Before I get to anything else, what do you think? Do you think he was credible? I mean, it's just so, I understand that people can have big imaginations. You know, I understand that he, had um a lot of some people want to make shit up just right, to get, just like, to get attention I exactly i understand that but it, there's just so many details that mm-hmm. are so exact and to to what end i mean again at this time there's not a lot of news out there because so many people have refused to look into the story so how do you get this information it's not like today where you have the social media where i can look up on a website find all the information about johnny gosh and then recite that to a yeah. That's the weird thing is that we already know at this time in the 80s, even the early 90s, this information isn't widespread. It's not well known. I mean, now, yeah, like people have enough information to maybe be very questionable, but not back then. Not back yeah. then. Yeah. I, I think he's very credible. And actually, if, like, if you see him in a documentary, like he's out of jail now and now he's married, he has children. He talks about how, how hard it's been for him, and how, how much his wife has helped him. And like, he seems like a normal guy and you can see how much pain he was in when they took him to that house, mm-hmm. America's Most Wanted. Like he almost didn't walk in. Like he oh, just started, like, and, he and, just started crying. Like it was, just, it was just so, it's just so crazy to be like, not like you won't even consider talking to him, hearing his side story. You know, that makes zero sense to me. Anyway, okay, so we're going to go to um, another twist, okay? And this one made people discredit Noreen. And I want to hear what you think about this piece of information because this, this was huge, okay? So Noreen was testifying in court for Paul Bonassi's case. And when she was asked if she had ever seen Johnny since his disappearance, she didn't answer. The judge told her she had to answer or she will be held in contempt of court. And because she was under oath, she felt she had to tell the truth. She said she has seen and met Johnny. He had come to her house a few years prior. She said in March 1997, her son came to visit her at 2.30 a.m. He knocked on her door and had another young man with him. She said Johnny's hair was straight and dyed jet black and came all the way down to his shoulders. He had on a coat over t-shirt and jeans. He was 27 years old at this point but she recognized him right away because his eyes were the same. She said the eyes never change. She did ask, who is it? And he said, it's me, mom. Even though she recognized him right away, she confirmed his identity, identity by showing her um, his birthmark on his chest. 
Johnny has seen his mom on a talk show telling him to contact her if he can because she was like on every single media you can think of. She went on every single talk show. She said yes to any kind of publicity to try to get the story out. She told him, she told Johnny she wanted to call someone to help him, but he became very upset and said, they will kill me if they know I was here. They talked for about an hour. He confirmed everything Paul has said about his kidnapping. He told Noreen he was abducted into an underground pedophile sex trafficking organization. And when he was too old to be of any use, he was thrown into the streets. With the fear of them coming after him, he was forced to live under a fake identity. He said it was too dangerous for him to come home, not only fearing for his own life, but the life of his loved ones. He had asked her not to tell anyone about this because it could put him in danger. He also told her about how they moved the kids around the states and that they forced a lot of kids to do, to do illegal things so the kids never felt like they could go to the police. Wow. Nor yeah. Noreen later published a book called Why Johnny Can't Come Home, exposing everything she's learned about child sex trafficking ring. The interviewer on the documentary told Noreen, for someone as so outspoken who told the media everything, now all of a sudden you don't say anything? And she said, it's very simple. My son asked me not to say anything. I can't blame her. You know, I think like her son's life was on the line and she kept this information to herself for two years to keep her son safe. And when John Sr. heard about this, he came out publicly and said he was not sure he believed his ex-wife's story. They had already divorced at this point. So what do you think of Noreen's story? Again, why would you make that up? That's exactly why, why would, would you, you lie? Why would you do that? And especially like in such a public place. I mean, I need to read that book. Why Johnny can't come. I think that that would, that would be really interesting. And again, everything that we know about trafficking rings, all the news that's come out. I mean, Pizzagate, whether that's a conspiracy or not. Um, I think that it, there's just too much information out there and with these things being so specific and it makes sense i mean it makes sense that he wouldn't want to come home based on everything that he knows and if these people yeah. are truly powerful and very dangerous they will take him i mean i'm surprised he got out alive you know a lot of these kids don't get out alive because of all the shit they have seen correct i mean or you like know? was able to talk and be coherent about it because that's i mean i I mean, he sounds like a survivor. He just sounds yeah. like a survivor. And then that's, and his mother sounds like a survivor too. So his mother's you know, incredible. Like, correct. People, and a lot of people hate her because why? of how outspoken, because of how outspoken she is. And the police hates her because she's spoken up against uh, the police. The FBI hates her because she's spoken up against FBI. A lot of people in the interview, they, when they interview the people in the Des Moines area now, people say, that, oh, she's, she's kooky. Like people think she's crazy. I mean, but, you know, but to this day, <clears throat> she's still through the Johnny Gosh Foundation. She's still helping families with missing children. She drives everywhere, talk to them in their most time of need, tell them what, what they need to do. Oh my gosh. This you know, gets, gets them connected to, to her connections. Like she is amazing. She's, she said, I will not let Johnny's di disappearance be in vain. Yes. You know, yeah. she said, sounds, I'm, I'm here alive. I'm going to be telling the story. I'm going to keep this alive. Yes, absolutely. As you she know? should, because these are the stories that need to be told. Again, the fact that nobody on social media is talking about this, but we're talking about like other things. That's insane. The, and, and, and you know what? I'm like, I would probably go crazy. I would probably go crazy. If that happened to me, I would be devastated. Yeah. And the fact that she, is fighting through everything i mean and she's so strong she's correct. so I, i'm like i don't know if i can make it through i feel I like not, without, 
Like stable and I'll say, if we lost our kids, I'm just not fucking off myself because I don't know if I can live without my kids at this point. Or anybody, anybody like, right. That you're close to, even if it was yeah. a really close friend. Like, yeah. I think that the people that have those survivor stories and those witness stories, like they, they're so incredibly strong to keep telling and keep fighting and keep yeah. helping more people because you're, I mean, it, for me, I would, it would sounds like you're reliving the trauma over again, but she's found a way to make it, um, to propel her to prevent anything bad from happening and to solve the case. And so when people are coming after, you know, and making these judgments, I'm like, well, you, they must have never had anything bad happen to them at all. Like, because yeah. that's actually, the thing. Yeah. yeah, there's actually more twists coming up. Oh. But before that, I want to cover a couple of things that Lorraine and John, John uh, gosh, senior have able to achieve because of everything they have done. Yes. Because I think that needs to be recognized. So in 1982, Lorraine and John uh, Sr. established the Johnny Gosh Foundation in hopes of educating other parents of tactics and motives of child kidnappers. She has helped a lot of families with missing children through this foundation. And to this day, like I say, she's still helping families so, since 1982. Incredible. In 1984, the Goshes with John Walsh and other parents uh, started the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. In 1984, Johnny and Eugene were the first two kids on the milk cartons. Do you remember back in the days when they used to have missing children on milk cartons? Yeah, I mean, because they were, were, and it was important because they were in school. That was a way to get information yeah, around. Yeah, exactly. The and they were the first two. Wow. That were, yeah. Um, in 1984, the Johnny Gosh bill became a law in Iowa. The law mandated an immediate response and action from law enforcement in case of missing children. I think most states have adopted this law since. So again, huge in, in pushing that law through. Lorraine also spoke out in Congress about child kidnapping and pedophilia. She also specifically called out the FBI and said, if they won't help with missing children cases, then some of their funding needs to be given to another agency that, that will focus on this issue. After her testimony, the US Department of Justice allocated $10 million for the establishment of National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So she had a huge part in getting that off the ground. Okay, so here's another twist in the case. On um, September 1st, 2006, this poor woman, so, someone sent Noreen photos of young boys tied up and gag. One of the photos was a young boy tied up and gag and possibly branded on his shoulder, whom she was sure was Johnny. She later tracked these photos to a child pornography site. This was in 2006, people are still tormenting her, okay? A few weeks later, on September 13, 2006, the Denoy police received an anonymous letter that read, Gentlemen, someone has played a reprehensible joke on the grieving mother. The photo in question is not one of her son, but three boys from Tampa, Florida from 1979 to 1980, just challenging each other to an escape contest. There was an investigation concerning the picture by the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. No charges were filed and no, and no wrongdoings were established. The lead detective on the case was named so Selva. This information should be easy to check out. Selva did confirm this indeed happened, but while the three of the boys in the photo were identified by the investigators, the, the fourth boy, whom Noreen thinks is Johnny, they're, again, they're separate photos, not on the same photo, um, whom Noreen thinks is Johnny was never identified. Noreen still believes that photo was of Johnny, particularly because the boy in the photo looked like he had a birthmark on his chest, just like Johnny's. 
Uh, also, years after Johnny's connecting, Noreen learned from one of her private investigators that the Des Moines Police Department had been ordered to stand down the morning Johnny disappeared, which is why the police did not return to their house until eight hours later that day. That's also why they didn't put out a call on the car that was seen and why they refused to use helicopters or canine to help search for Johnny. So the, the police department was specifically told to stand down the, the morning of his disappearance. By whom? I don't know. But again, it's by somewhere, someone on top. A British pro uh, production company went to Omaha, Nebraska to investigate Lawrence King and his alleged allegations for a documentary for the Discovery Channel. What they found was a conspiracy of silence, which is actually the title of the film. Then they said Discovery Channel called them and told them all work on this, this program must cease immediately. The production company had their senior executives talk to Discovery with hopes to still air this program, but Discovery said they didn't want anything to do with this case and they didn't want to talk about it. Why? So, <laughs> Why? Everything screams cover-up. Lauren Schmidt, the Nebraska state senator at the time, even said he was disappointed in the way the FBI and the law enforcement treated these victims. He said they, in fact, turned the victims into the offenders. Mm. Like, absolutely terrible. Okay, so that's all the case up to 2016. For the last part, I'm going to talk about the conspiracy about John Gosh Sr. And, and whether if you think he's involved in this case or not. I'm on the fence. I want to hear your thoughts. Because remember, he was very active in the investigation. Yeah, very right? active. Yeah, and he did help Noreen and to push out those laws. So he was part of the investigation. But here's, our, here's some interesting things. Um, about a month before Johnny's kidnapping, calls started coming in around 1.30 every single morning. And John Sr. would tell them it was the wrong number. Since there wasn't caller ID back then, they never found out who made these calls. So starting August 1982, they were every morning at 1.30, someone would call and it would be, it would be a non, uh, wrong number. What's suspicious is the call that came in as usual on 1.30 in the morning um, of Johnny's disappearance. But this time, Noreen heard John Sr. say, yeah, okay, all right. Then he hung up. When she asked him who it was, he said it was the wrong number. Noreen was confused and said, you don't have a conversation with someone who weighs the wrong number, you know? The morning Johnny disappeared is also the first and only morning he went out without John Sr. Then during a court case in 1999, a judge asked Paul Bonassi how the kidnappers knew Johnny would be alone that morning. And without hesitation, Paul said, prior arrange arrangements were made with Mr. Gosh on the phone at 1.30 in the morning. What? He said John Gosh Sr. was specifically told not to go on the route that morning. This was the first time Noreen had heard this accusation against her husband. But everything else Paul said to her had checked out. And why would he lie? Especially because he was not receiving anything for coming forward with this information. Actually, he never received anything for any of the information he gave. Instead, he was ridiculed for all of his information he gave. Oh my okay, God. So what was the reason for him to say that? Noreen later learned that John Sr. often visited a club where Lawrence King and his associates were known to recruit young boys, young men and boys into his sex ring. And she also learned John Sr. had brought another woman to his first meeting with Paul at the prison and claimed this woman was his wife, Noreen. And at least 25 people had been introduced to this woman as John's wife. And he frequently brought this woman with him to meet to the meetings at the prison. It's also worth noting 
the 1:30 a.m. call stopped after Johnny's disappearance. So, what do you think of John Gosh Senior? It's just there. I mean, I don't believe in coincidences. So, of anything, of any sort, I think that that that's just doesn't. I mean, has he ever? I can use something. In the beginning, I also I just found it's really interesting that the one day he gets kidnapped, his dad wasn't with him, you know. But at the same time, like, well, he was so active in the investigation. And then when I was working a docu- watching a documentary, John Gosh Senior was in it, and he looks like a really nice, gentle grandpa, you know. And so I'm just like, how can this get this man do that to his son? But I also know looks can be deceiving, right. you know. Some of the most prominent serial killers were super charming. You know, so you just don't know, and and I'm like you. I don't believe in coincidence, and I find it's really, really interesting that the only time he spoke to these one thirty calls was the night before Johnny disappeared. And again, why would Paul lie? Paul's been ridiculed his his entire time. He's told his, his stories. What was the point for him to lie? Why would he come up with this elaborate hoax with people writing letters to him and like with information and all this story? Why would he do this if it's not true? Right. I mean, yeah, especially because if it's not, you're not gaining money yeah, from this. Like you're not yeah. becoming famous. Like that's not that's not what this yeah. is about. Uh, and again, just all the information that just lines up. It's just enough, but not enough. And mm, I mean, ugh, it's I, it's just poor Johnny. Like poor Johnny. One, his case was, it was. It was always set up botched. to fail. It was so botched. Yeah, exactly. It was set up to fail. They set this up so that you would never find him. You and know, then, they basically say he was runaway. Forget about him. Which is, again, the first weird thing because, I mean, maybe that is true. Maybe people were runaways also common back then. I think that I, I just have to look up some of the statistics. I don't know. But, 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 if you, but if you say if the parents and the friends and the neighbors in the community all say that he was our the paper delivery, this has never happened. This is not his character right if you have to believe he would not know him yeah that's the weirdest part i think is just people telling a story people who didn't know him telling the story about johnny and and people who do know johnny and telling their story but being discredited that's the weirdest piece about this about any of these stories i mean about the story and even um any of the stories that we hear today about missing children it's that same type of pattern where Mm -hmm. Other people who are not close to the victim at all or their family just making up stuff and 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 that's what becomes bigger news. Right. And the question here is, is there really was this police corruption or was this just police incompetence? Did, were they were they purposely trying to derail the investigation or were they just because this never this obviously didn't happen back in the days were they just not ready and they didn't know how to take these cases because mm. in most unsolved cases the common thread is the police botched the invest- investigation mm. they fucked up the crime scene they did not right. get all the evidence they didn't talk to the right witnesses they wanted to pin on one person and only go with their own narrative like this is the most common thing in all unsolved cases but but this case is just this case is just so crazy. Yeah, you know there was so much, and like for me, I am really convinced Chief Cooney was definitely involved in this ring somehow mm. because he was obviously corrupt. Hmm. You know, he later had to resign because I believe like something like six officers under him came out wow. with corruption allegations, and plus he was regularly drunk. He was known as a drunk in town. 
So like even like you know how police always protect their own, but even his own people ratted him out. Wow. So that so I do believe he was he was corrupt, mm-hmm. and I think he he knew a lot about what was going on, and he just was protecting the criminals. Wow. I mean, that's what I believe. Yeah, especially these people are like very well connected and very wealthy. I mean, he was, I. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's and that's the thing I want like all the parents to be extra careful and vigilant because when this shit happens, you you're not gonna win against these rich people. You have no, you have none of their resources. No, you, you, you don't. You don't have none yeah. of their resources. You all they you control have. the media, they control law enforcement, they control everything. So, you know, the best you can do is protect your children. I know, like, sometimes they will say, I'm a paranoid mom. But the fact is, you know, I have spent a lot of time reading true crime. I also spend time reading conspiracy. I don't believe in all of them. I like to make up my own judgments. But I feel like I know too much. Mm. <laughs> and I feel like because I know too much, I'm always careful about, you know, whenever I'm outside, I'm very aware where are all the all the exit signs? Which ways can I like get away the fastest? How can I make sure I can protect my children? Like that's always going through my head. And I know that's like can be really tiring, but I feel like when you have to protect like, protect your children, like this is very much you need to be extra vigilant. Right. And and to be able to tell them these stories and that's my plan, right? Is to have my children also be involved with uh, with these mysteries, I'm, I I do love a good mystery, but um, but the purpose of it is to understand why it can't be solved, so that we can solve the next mysteries. And I think that those that's very very important to be able to share this and and share even the survivor stories, right? So you can see like, look at this time, there are so many people that didn't you know you think that you might not know what to do, but there's an instinct in you, and don't fight that instinct. Same thing like you know, fuck politeness. Like if you think someone's going to be really nice, don't trust them first off. Mm-hmm. Like it, you have to be discerning and you have to know when, when to run. And I think yeah. that's incredibly important um, to build. And this really made me think about how incredible, like truly the Me Too movement is mm-hmm. because think about the witness that came out for Lawrence King. She was throwing jail for nine to 15 years. Insane. You know, like, with the Me Too movement, that protects the women that want to come out. And other women were like, well, why didn't they come out earlier? Well, look at the history. Right. Look exactly. at how people are treated. Most women that come out with any kind of sex abuse stories, they're being told you're a liar. Or there's, you know? there's so a So why stigma. would they come out? Exactly. exactly. Like, it doesn't feel great. Like, you yeah, know. And, and, and where she got sentenced 9 to 15 years in jail. That's her. I mean, she was 21. She's already has so much trauma as a child. Now she's in jail for the from her 20s to her 30s crazy like i mean i have so many questions right like the the judge that was involved the lawyer that was involved all the of jury it. that was involved mm-hmm. there's just so much obviously like that you know we could pick apart and um and the most important thing now is that there are resources behind protecting mm-hmm. victims um, yep. and helping victims and that i'm i mean and volunteering like volunteering for these efforts like if you hear something see something you know be be part of that change so that we we can make a different world and a better world happen and uh, yeah i'm definitely gonna look up in i think next time that we record um i'll try to find out some foundations and some volunteer efforts that we can probably share um, yeah, I'll include in the show notes okay. where you can donate and we can learn more about sex trafficking. There's a great documentary called I Am Jane Doe that covers 
um, about sex trafficking. And that's, I think all of that is worth to check out so that you can understand um, what the real world is like. This is the real world. A lot of people don't realize these things. They don't? No, a lot of people don't realize these things. I think the biggest thing is the statistics of what's happening locally, right? Like Mm -hmm. what's happening in California for us. What's happening in the California is one of, California is huge in missing children in child kidnapping same thing with washington dc guess what both areas very prominent rich people uh, I, I mean and I, I think the biggest thing that when my mom was telling me when i was growing up was was always just the fear of me being kidnapped she always told me that so i grew up with the fear thinking i could be kidnapped <laughs> which is- i literally told i told, i tell sophie all the time like hey look around you make sure if you feel like if you feel uneasy Take yourself out of the situation. I told her, I don't care if you're with your best friend, anyone you trust, if you don't feel easy, trust that instinct. Exactly. And, and, and get somewhere safe. Right. And, and for, um, and then for my, and I remember I, I told my mom, like right around teenage times where I'd be like, mom, come on, it's not China. Like this is the US. I told her that in the nineties when I was growing up, because I'm thinking as a teenager, you're feeling the top of the world. You're feeling super. Yeah. Powerful. We all felt that way. We never, I mean, all the times, thinking back, all the times I snuck out in the middle of the night, you know, like Sable and I were talking, we always say, how the fuck are we alive? We are lucky we didn't get kidnapped, we didn't get killed, we didn't get raped. I'm like, now we're like so scared of the thought of our kids sneaking out in the middle of the night. So I'm literally like, do we once, when they're teenagers, do we put on like multiple alarms, the house change the code every single day, <laughs> every night so they can't sneak out? <laughs> well, but I think the whole thing is just, in just teaching them to have the communication with you yeah. like one just yeah. if you're if they feel the urge talk about it first like why why do we get to yeah. that point and that's I, why we're very we all say that we're we plan to be very open we're we are already very open are. parents yeah. we talk about why we smoke weed in the house and why it's not okay for them to do it you know we talk about we are very open about them you know if sophie wants to have a boyfriend one day that's fine you know and like we want to be open so that they can tell us everything because i think there's nothing worse than telling your kids you can't do this and can't do that and then they end up lying to you right i'd rather know so that we can have that conversation so that if you want to try something you know we're very much if they want to try alcohol fine have some wine do it in the house in front of that's exactly right you know and like if you don't have you know friends you're gonna have a party and there's gonna be drinking i will contact all the parents make sure they all know about it. they're okay with it we can do it in a house where this is we you can have three beers like this is how much you can have you can, can there's have limits yeah. there are people well people will be here to pick you up you're not you're not going to be driving home drunk you're not going to be out alone walking around you're going to have parent parental supervision like all of that but you know but that's why we think it's important to to be able to talk to your children and allow them freedom to try things right because so they one don't day, do it behind your back because exactly because i mean i'm not saying that it's you know, that how we, how we believe is, is right for like everybody and every person, like definitely like the different, you know, like watch your children for sure and understand like their limits um, and, and use your best judgment. But I'm saying that at one point they're not going to be children. They're going to grow up and you want to make sure that they're prepared to grow up because yeah. they're going to have questions. Like, yeah. and I will say like, and I will say this is human nature. Yeah, the true. more we're told we can't do something, the more we want to do it. Yeah, even now, right? Like when we're employees. <laughs> yeah, even as adults, we're exactly. like, you're like, yeah. as in, what does your employer try to tell you? And you're like, I'm going to do exactly the opposite. Just ter- yeah. yeah, terrible things. Yeah, so like, that's just human nature. So and you understand human nature and use it to your advantage. 
Yeah, exactly. If you fight human nature, you're going to have a hard time. Right. And because all we're trying to do is it's survival, right? Because all we want to know is just understand, wait, why can't I touch the fire? Like, I yeah. just need to understand why we can't touch the fire. That's how you learn, right? Yeah, I mean. I think I read some, I forgot what, what the book or something I was reading. And they said, like, they really wanted to drink. So the mom gave them a shitload of alcohol. And she was, like, so fucked up next day. She's like, I never drank again for years until I was, like, 21. Yeah, like, I, I've I heard stories. I think either my friend or either I read this in a, in a magazine as one of those, like, silly stories where, um, yeah, parents then allow them the, the binge. And yeah. then you get through and the binge. Like, never again. Correct. And you're like, now I get it. And because you learn yeah. the hard way. But at the same time, it was supervised. And it was within a yeah. limit, obviously, that the mother yeah. or the parent knew that the child. That was enough. Yeah, exactly. That, that yeah. was enough. I'm sure, if it, you know, everything was safe and, and done in the background. But um, I, I think that that's just one thing that we want to leave our listeners with is, yeah, be discerning. Keep your eyes peeled. I mean, again, like you don't sometimes the people that hurt you the are the people that are you know the closest or you never thought would hurt you you know same thing with all these um child adoption cases sometimes it's someone that you know or someone that's very very close to you these questions that we're having in this case i find it hard to believe that it's not someone who knew johnny i like that seems it just seems very suspect to me so i really hope that well yeah most kidnappings are usually by people that they know or they have encountered before but but there's also a lot of kidnappings where they're just strangers and this is where where what Paul Bonassi said was is using chloroform is a huge way of kidnapping people right because you're out it only takes it's like a couple seconds and you're gone there's no noise they just have to snack you put it over your mouth you breathe and you're you're out yeah so Number and what one, what do you do when you panic? You breathe. It correct. Right? It, right, exactly. That's true. You're breathing deep. Exactly. So, and this is actually now that I now I remember like a really good tip that my mom told me. She says when you're walking out, especially in a city, you don't use your headphones. You can put them in your ear, but don't turn on anything. You can, you know, if you want to block. Be aware of your surroundings. That's exactly right. Like you don't want to block any noise out. You keep one ear always open and one eye always open. Yeah. But because that's when the back of your when something happens, that's when the the back of your hair like starts standing up because you know there's something going on. But when you're completely lost, like in your music or in a story, you don't notice these things. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it was in New York City where that's where I learned. Yeah. If you, I can keep my headphones in, but just don't play anything um, so that I know what's going on. But when I'm waiting for the subway, you want to stand as close to the wall as possible so that no one can sneak up behind you. And you want to mm-hmm. stay like, you want to make sure that you know exactly where everything's coming because yeah, you're not even sure. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen. This world is so fucking crazy. It's yeah. so scary, but it's so, it, it's really true. Like I often, I always have headphones on and people always think I'm listening, but actually I'm, when I'm at home, I, it's always on, but when I'm out like walking, I have it on, but it's never on. I'm always very aware. <laughs> I just like to people think people Think that I'm not aware, but I'm very aware of what's going on and who's around me. Right, exactly. And I think that that's the most important thing is that you, you know, that you're safe and that you keep your family safe. And these are the tips that we want to live. Like we yeah. want to, yes, we want to live, but we also want to leave our listeners. With. Yes, don't like go out and live your life. Just always saying, just be aware, be careful. Awareness is key for everything. Yeah, and spread you those know? knowledge. And spread external, the knowledge. internal, it's all about awareness. Correct. 
But anyway, um, this is a long case, a crazy case. I hope you guys enjoyed this case. I would love to hear feedback on if you guys enjoyed this kind of content or not. For the rest of October, we'll be covering more stories of um, true crime as well as I think I, for the week of Halloween, I think I'm going to do an actual mystery. So it's not a true crime, but it's like actually my favorite mystery of all time. Um, I'm dying to talk about it. So we're going to talk about that. Um, so let us know. I'm curious to, to hear your feedback on this episode or on this case. Mm -hmm. And if you like this kind of content, please, please let us know. So maybe we can, in the, in the, in, even in the future, sprinkle in some true crime or mysteries here and there mm -hmm. when we don't feel like we have anything internally we want to talk about <laughs> absolutely thank you so much Ian, for sharing that and yeah I'm and next week Yvonne will share a story um she wants to tell yes all right talk to you guys later bye bye thanks again for listening to this episode we really appreciate your support for our little podcast if you enjoyed this episode, it will mean the world to us if you can leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. This will help more people discover our podcast. You can find Lost and Refound podcast on Instagram at lost.and.refound. If you want to email us, you can do so at lostandrefoundpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I hope you stay positive and creative. Bye. Bye.